All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all. I know we took a break last uh, last week. That's what we'll call it. We took a break, but um, I'm glad to be here with electricity on and heat and such, and uh, excited to continue on talking about the Lord's Supper. And uh, we will turn from talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, I think, next time we are together. And uh, uh, to address oddly, which I've explained a couple of times, we'll close with deacons as a very awkward end to the series. But it's just how, how things have progressed. If you go back and look at it, it uh, makes sense, even if it's not the most logical progression. But anyways, let me pray for our time and we will go ahead. I'll give a brief recap and then we will get into it together, God. We pray that you are honored in what we do this morning. We pray that you are honored in uh, the baptisms that we have the incredible privilege of getting to see and participate in. We pray that you are honored in our uh, ministries to children this morning. We pray that you're honored in the way our nursery workers care for even littler ones, interact with one another, that you're honored by what we do in this room, that you're honored by what the ladies uh, that, that, that uh, Amy and Bethany are doing uh, down there in, in the... Uh, in the Mark class, God, we pray that uh, that the, these teachings and these moments uh, would plant seeds in our hearts, uh, that you would work in our hearts, especially this morning, you know, to move us one step toward Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I've got to figure out uh, how I want to do this. I'll do it like this. All right, need some lubricant here. Okay, so if you recall, let me see. Yeah, so if you recall last time, we gave a kind of biblical theological sketch of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper does not appear in the pages of the New Testament kind of in a vacuum. We started back with, of course, the Passover. The Passover and then the subsequent exodus from Egypt. And then we took kind of a brief stop at the bread of the presence and the wine offering that were inside the tabernacle. If you recall, there were six loaves of bread on each side, and there was wine in there. And Aaron and uh, the priests would eat the bread. Presumably, they would actually pour out all the wine because priests were not allowed to drink alcohol, uh, at least not on, uh, certainly not on duty. Um, but it does, there, there is something there. I tried to tie some pieces together. There is some kind of whisper, it seems, about... Uh, the bread and the wine right there in the presence of God um, in the context of sacrifice for sin. Then we fast forward to John chapter 6, which has historically has played an enormous role in understanding the Lord's Supper. And that is, of course, because that is where uh, Jesus gives his little speech that I said that he always probably gave when the crowds were just getting too large. That he who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood you know, has no part of me, and then everyone left, and said, like, where did everyone go? Uh, but the idea is that this ends up playing a role down in the Last Supper, which is what we are going to look at today. Before we go into the views, I'm going to give you the views of the Lord's Supper and the elements, but I want to spend some time here in the Last Supper. The Last Supper has a fourfold gospel tradition, fourfold attestation, just meaning that it's included in all four gospels. The four gospels portray the Lord's Supper differently, but it's nevertheless there in all four. Uh, but we're not going to have time to look at all four. And so instead, what we are going to do is we are going to look at Luke's account. And I'm going to talk about where the other ones diverge at 
some interesting places. So if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to Luke chapter 22. Then I'm going to read 7 through 23 just so we can get the idea of what's, what's going on here. Okay? Oh, I need to move this back a little bit. My pages can't turn. Can everyone still hear me okay? Yeah, I might have to move it back up a little bit. That's okay. Okay, in Luke 22, starting in verse 7, follow along with me. He says, Then came the day of the unleavened bread, which was the feast, by the way, that was celebrated, and the Passover meal was one part of the feast of unleavened bread. So, you know, if you go to like a Bible conference or something, you might eat a lot of meals with people, but this, this, this little, this feast week, for the people of Israel culminated in the Passover, but there were a bunch of other meals celebrated during that time because you didn't fast the whole time. You were still eating. You were still with family. You still doing all the rest. But that's what unleavened bread was. The day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. That's what day it was. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. So from start to finish, this whole thing is orchestrated, by the way. From start to finish, what we're about to see in the Lord's Supper is very intentionally orchestrated. They didn't just find any space where they could go hang out. Uh, this isn't just Jesus who's going to put a, a, a twist on something old. This is very intentional. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled, the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup, uh, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So this text and the parallels in the Gospels are obviously, I would, I would say obviously, the, the uh, most important passages for understanding the precise nature of the Lord's Supper. And so I just want to make five observations together about what we see here and again in some of the other accounts that is going to help us get our hands around a kind of a full-orb doctrine of the Lord's Supper. The first is the Lord's Supper is an enacted parable of Christ's sacrificial death. 
an enacted parable. We see this kind of thing that actually goes on in the prophets. We see it in the language of the text here explicitly. Um, and we also see, by the way, that the gospel authors have foretold something like this in the buildup. Jesus has already foretold his death multiple times. And uh, the, Judas is, depending on which gospel you read, Judas the betrayer uh, is placed in the account to let us know that this is about to, to happen. And again, depending on which gospel uh, we are in, it's actually not Luke. All, all, the other, all three other gospels record Jesus anointed at Bethany, if you'll remember, in, in, in uh, preparation for his death. Luke actually leaves that out. The other three gospel authors place that in. But we've been given teasers that something like this is coming. And so when he holds this up and he says, this is my blood, this is my body, um, and this is going to be poured out for you. We might think, of course, the disciples didn't because they didn't seem to get anything until after the ascension. And just, but, but, but we 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 read this going, oh, wait a second, we've we're from, we know this language. Jesus said back in John six. I mean, this sounds very familiar. There's an enacted parable of Christ's sacrificial de death at the breaking of the bread, and with the with the wine that would be poured out. The second thing you see here is it's a fulfillment of the Passover and a new Exodus. Um, the most obvious indicator of this conclusion is that it about is that it is positioned as a Passover meal. Now, I'm not in the business of raising questions that no one's answering, but I'll just say I said it once before that there are some people who say, well, because of the timing of the Passover relative to Christ's death, this actually wasn't a Passover meal. It was a, one of the meals that would have been celebrated there, but it actually wasn't a Passover meal. That's why there's no lamb pictured on the table. There's bread and wine. There's no lamb. Um, I'm not going to go into why I think that's problematic. If it was a regular meal, by the way, they would not have been reclined at table because that was something that you did for particular meals, uh, particularly important meals in many cases. Uh, so, so maybe it's not, it's not that it necessarily could not have been that, uh, but it likely would not have been. And there are other indicators as well that it is a Passover meal. I'm not going to go into that, but certainly regardless, it is cast as a Passover meal. So some people even say, well, it was, a it was a Passover meal, but he celebrated it a day early. Okay, whatever. Some people say, no, it wasn't a Passover meal at all. Um, he's just, he, this, is, this is a, uh, a brand new thing. That, uh, but what, what, what does seem to be very, very clear, however, is that it is a Passover meal and that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. Whether he celebrated a day early or not, is not it, for, for, the, for the theology of the Lord's Supper, is not overly important. It's not overly important, okay? But I tend to take the, I think the traditional view is right. I, I don't think that he did celebrate it um, a day early. So, but, so having said that, we have the Passover, this symbol of blood on the lentils on the doorpost of the, uh, of, the, of the home and the angel of death passing over the people in the houses there in Egypt. Uh, and, and if they did not do so, the, the firstborn was, was a goner, Right? But this blood caused the wrath of God there to be averted. And Jesus steps into this. And notice in your Bible, it probably says like the institution of the Lord's Supper. So because he was celebrating a Passover meal, but he was imbuing it with different meaning and different significance in terms of in light of what he was doing. There was I'll say it like this. There was never a Passover meal that happened just like this. This is it. All the ones after it were just straight up Lord's suppers, 
All the ones before it were straight up Passovers. This one right here, Jesus is starting to turn the corner in terms of redefining what this is for a new covenant. For a new covenant. He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, lead people out of bondage, and where He will feed them with bread that came down from heaven so that they can have eternal life. Does that sound like the Exodus? Sounds like the Exodus to me. And so we have the final passing over of sin in the pouring out of Christ's blood. So certainly, if we're stitching things together here, we have a fulfillment of the Passover. The Passover was always pointing us to something greater. A passing over. A blood that would save from the wrath of God. Here we have the fulfillment of it in terms of an enacted parable and the beginning of a new kind of exodus. Let me ask this, I'm going to ask it, and then it's not a real question, it's a rhetorical question, and hopefully no one actually asked me a question about it. But if you were debating the, uh, um, yeah, if you were having a discussion with someone about the atonement, and, the, and, and uh, Christ, and this is pictured as a second Passover, and, and therefore the atonement is pictured as a particular kind of passing over sin, you might ask, uh, whose sin exactly was passed over? Whose sin was passed over? When Christ the sacrificial lamb was offered, whose sin was actually passed over? It's a great question. I'm not going to go into any further detail. But you need to think about that. Whose sin was actually passed over? And if you sacrifice the lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost of your home, your whole house was actually passed over. The blood, the blood of the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you might ask whose sin precisely was passed over. And that's going uh, to kick the rock down the road in terms of discussions surrounding the extent of the atonement. But that's not what we're here to discuss. We're here now to discuss the inauguration of the new covenant. He, Luke is actually the only gospel that explicitly says this. I don't know if you knew that or not. Luke is the only gospel that explicitly says, includes that new covenant. Although it's very obvious that the other gospels uh, mean the same thing. They're concluding really the same thing without using the language the idea is present in all four, though. You can hear this language back from Exodus 24, 6, and 8, where Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood, he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Again, of course, most obviously from Jeremiah chapter 31, in the promise of a new covenant that would have been instantly what everyone would have thought that there is a new covenant uh, that is coming. And here we have the inauguration, the inaugural meal for that covenant, which is different than the meal for the old covenant, which was the Passover. New covenant, whatever this is, now called the Lord's Supper in the early church, that's what it developed as the Lord's Supper, Old Covenant, Passover, this is the fulfillment. Or fulfillment, and then, of course, in one sense, at a more superficial level, a replacement. I would say the ultimate fulfillment of it is Christ passing over sin. I would say that this is the picture of Christ passing over sin. Okay, so in one sense, it's a, uh, th this is a replacement for the meal. The fulfillment is found in what Jesus actually did, namely pouring out his blood and breaking his body. Um, so just as sacrifice confirmed uh, uh, and atoned under the old covenant, so it will under the new. That is what is pictured here in the supper. 
Uh, Fourth, community identity formation. Uh, The Passover meal was not something someone did in isolation. And this actually struck, I had never considered this before I sat down to kind of develop this right here. This is a, this, this, this is really, really, this was really shocking to me. I I say shocking, it's like something that you, I should have known, but it just never really clicked. And here's, here's what I've discovered here. The Passover, again, was not something that someone did by themselves, alone in their home, right? It's a family affair, at the very least, a one single family affair. So you might ask this question, uh, why aren't all these guys taking doing Passover with their families? I mean, Jesus has asked them in so many words, hey, I know you've got families. Peter's married. He says, well, we're going to take this supper together. We're going to do this Passover together. Maybe you can do it another time. We're not told, well, maybe you can do it at another time with your families, uh, or, or this is just going to be the one, you know, maybe you could do like, you know, like celebrate two Christmases, like you sometimes do on Christmas Day, you're like, oh, goodness, do we really have to? But, um, but, but maybe there was something like that. I don't really know that that was a thing, but the point is this, that Jesus had these Jewish men away from their families, either the families that they had or the families they were a part of, so to speak. What is he doing? This has to be fully appreciated. Jesus is redrawing the lines of family. He is taking something that is a family household meal, and he's taking people who are not part of his physical family, you don't, Mary's not here. Mary doesn't show up here. Where, why is Jesus not as the head of the, presumptive head of the home that Joseph departed and he's, you know, happens to be the son of God? Why is he not the one explaining the Passover and doing the elements like the head of the Jewish household would? Why? Well, he does that, but he's off over doing it with his disciples. Something is happening. There's a change that's happening. It's significant. He's redrawing the lines of family and community. We've already seen this. When his mother's and uh, his mother and his, his uh, siblings are trying to get him out, you know he's work he's he's working uh, he's doing miracles and teaching like hey Jesus your family's out here, and and he's already redefined what counts as family for him. He's already redefined that throughout the course of the gospel. So when we get here, it's not a totally new thing. There is an identity built around Christ that is starting to form a new family and a new community. And that's why these people are not celebrating what would have been unthinkable to do. This is why these people are doing something that would have been unthinkable, and that is skipping out on Passover. This isn't Again, this is not like skipping out on Christmas with your in-laws. This is like uh, something that was central to the Israelite celebration. But this new family is not knit around bloodlines. It's knit around the family of God, which is why these people are together with Jesus. And then finally, the last thing here, the last supper, we need to understand that it is an appetizer for the eschatological banquet. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come, John writes in Revelation, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her 
uh, granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Jesus says, here's this bread, here's this fruit of the vine, and, and I'm not going to have any more of it. This is going to be my last, my last taste of both until something happens. Until the kingdom comes in. And that's what we read about toward the end of Revelation. Five observations about the Lord's Supper as we see it in the gospel tradition. Let me just pause and ask, are there any questions about anything that I've said or any of these five things as kind of a multifaceted way to understand what is going on in the upper room with what, what Jesus does relative to Passover and Lord's Supper? Is that window supposed to be open? No? It got blown open? Gotcha. Okay. Okay. I think I'm, I'm fairly confident about this part of the teaching. And that's because the scripture seems, I think, fairly clear about the theology of the Lord's Supper insofar as what I've said already. But the agreement on the precise what and how of the Lord's Supper, which is, again, what it became known as there early, early on in church history, uh, there is, frankly, very, very little direct instruction in the New Testament. Very little. Precious little instruction. And I have a whole section, the very last, the, the last thing that we are going to do here is I'm going to answer like a whole list of what-if questions whole list of what if questions and what we can celebrate it with questions and what if we get in this situation questions and what about shut-ins questions and can we serve do we I'm going to answer all those which the New Testament gives very little explicit evidence for but because there's been so little evidence some of the the sharpest debates in church history have been around the Lord's Supper and so what I want to do during the remainder of our time together, and I've got 20 minutes, I think I can make it through, which will put us on time to close up next time in the Lord's Supper, is go through kind of the four, what I would call, main views of the Lord's Supper. I'm not saying that there's not any other view or anyone's held something. These are the four main views, period. The four main views, and I've tried to support all of them instead of just saying, you know, here's what the view is. I've tried to give you... And I put them up here, I think. Direct quotes from original sources. So you don't think I'm making it up. Not that you would, but just you shouldn't put your trust in a man. You, know, you should want to see it. Okay? What's the first view? The first view is that of our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends. And that is the real physical presence through transubstantiation. Whoa! What on earth is that? So it comes as a shock to many uh, Protestants, evangelicals, many Baptists to understand that on the, on the Catholic understanding that the priest is holding bread and wine, uh, he doesn't hold them at the same time, anyways, he got bread and wine, there are the words, he pronounces his special words, 
um, and the and the bread and the wine turn into the flesh and blood of Jesus. The flesh and blood of Jesus. With the cover, the accident, because it, it, it depends on Aristotelian metaphysics, which you might think, maybe that's not the right categories. Anyways, the reason it still looks like bread and wine is because the accident, the, the contingent, the substance has changed fundamentally, but it has kind of like uh, the visual kind of tactile shell of bread and wine remains so that we are not uh, in the horrible position of having to like actually eat flesh. People would throw up. It would be nasty. No one could do it. So as a mercy, that doesn't happen. But nevertheless, the real physical presence of Jesus uh, here in the Eucharist. Let me give you a quote here. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. By the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Because of that, the second part of the Roman Catholic view is that the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, when it's celebrated, and by the way, this is why it's the central element in a Catholic Mass, is a real sacrifice. A, sac a sacrifice happens on Sunday morning in a Catholic church, according to Catholic theology. Physical body, physical blood, real sacrifice that is why it affects the forgiveness of sins. Now, let me dispel one kind of Protestant myth. Uh, what Catholics do not believe is that Christ is sacrificed over and over and over and over. It certainly sounds like that, but it's not. They hold a view that is, I'm not saying it's any more plausible, but it's not that. What they would say is something like this. If you could imagine the, the sacrifice of Christ uh, on the cross as some kind of like timeless outside of time thing. And for the lack of lack of better way to explain it, kind of here's this timeless sacrifice of Jesus floating here. And then here's reality down here. What the what the Eucharist does is it the language, it pulls the Lamb of Heaven down into where the Eucharist is being celebrated. So it kind of taps into this timeless sacrifice. It's not that the, the same thing happens over and over again. It represents the sacrificial lamb of Calvary. Okay? The eternal timeless sacrifice of the body and blood of the lamb of Calvary is pulled down, so to speak, into the body, uh, into uh, the bread and wine, which then are no longer bread and wine. They just look that way. Okay? That is the view... Now, by the way, transubstantiation, it should be, uh, you see the Council of Trent, 1551. It wasn't like, you know, the Gospel of John finished, got in, and then there was transubstantiation. That's something that got developed over time. And unfortunately, let me just give a plug here. When you go back and read the early church fathers and early church history, it's just one big boxing match about what they meant, what they said. They use language in totally different ways than we do now. 
They, they say things that when one in one sentence, they sound like they're saying this, the other sentence they're saying this. Um, and so it's difficult to know exactly what is going on. But certainly transubstantiation as a theory, as a theory of how the bread and wine become the body and blood, that is not something that develops until later. But of course, remember, if you're one of our Catholic friends, development of doctrine is one of your doctrines itself. So things can develop. So it doesn't matter that it wasn't worked out. It doesn't matter that it wasn't in the Scripture. It doesn't matter that it wasn't in the early church. It could still develop and be infallible. Okay? They might think that's problematic for a variety of reasons. You would no doubt be correct, but that's what it is. One final quote here for a real sacrifice. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, it makes present, the sacrifice of the cross because it is a memorial and it because it applies it applies its fruits. It applies its fruits. So there is a forgiveness of sin. There is a grace that is communicated to the person by taking the Eucharist again, which is why that is the central element of a Catholic Mass. Okay? First view. The Catholic by the way, Eastern Orthodox view, just so you know, they still believe that there is a physical body and blood. They still believe in real sacrifice. They actually want to shy away from just the language of the transubstantiation. They're just, they're just, they're just content to say, we don't know how it happens. It changes. There's a change. And they just leave, they're okay, leave it there. But in substance, they believe something very similar. Okay? First view. Second view, the Lutheran view. Now, before I show you Luther's view, you just got to have so you got to have a lot of understanding for our brother Luther, okay? Because the man was coming out of the Catholic Church as a priest, and he was a man who, in one sense, started the Protestant Reformation. It was like this man against all of Europe. I mean, it was. So, what do you do when you what do you do when you're trying to make a significant change? What you do is you try to preserve every last thing that you can and change just the parts that you absolutely feel like you have to change. You want to be a conservative, in other words, when you are campaigning for that kind of change in this kind of context. And so when you I'll show you Luther's view, you just got to read, again, Brother Luther with deep, deep historical sympathy for the context in which he developed his theology because no one develops theology in a vacuum. And his was, I'm the one person, I'm nailing 99, I'm doing something that no one else in church history has done in this way. So here's what he ended up with. Luther believed in the real physical presence along with the elements. Along with the elements. He says this, now here stands the text stating clearly and lucidly that Christ gives his body. Oh, I said to heat. Huh, that's funny. No, he didn't. To, to eat. I'm sorry about that for those reading along. Yeah, he gives his body to eat when he distributes the bread. And by the way, Martin Luther goes back to the upper room and uses what seems to us to be like a horribly literal hermeneutic. But he stands up and says, yeah, as Christ was holding the bread, he's like, look, he's, he's, he's saying that he is, his body is the bread. I mean, that's, that's what he keeps going back to, by the way. On this we take our stand. 
And we also believe and teach that in the supper we eat and take ourselves, take to ourselves Christ's body truly and physically. But how this takes place or how he is in the bread, we don't know. We're not meant to know, Luther says. God's words, God's words we should believe without setting bounds or measures to it. The bread we see with our eyes, but we, oh wow, I need to, we heart. Wow, this is awful. How did, I, how did I do this? But we, that's what happens when you do, at least spell the wrong word, but like it's a right wrong word, so it doesn't tell you. Anyway, but we hear with our ears that Christ's body is present. Is present, excuse me. Uh, Luther is not going to tell a story exactly about how this is possible. He says, listen. He doesn't say that it's, he doesn't, he's not, it's not transubstantiation. He doesn't believe the Catholic view, but he is going to say this. Listen, both of them are there. One doesn't change into the other. Both of them are there. And he kind of like when, when he uses examples in the, uh, when he's going back and forth as his interlocutors about like a, like an iron that you like put in a fire and it got like super hot. He's like, and you pull it out and like the fire and the iron are like together something like that. That's, he's trying to use these like, well, maybe it's kind of like that. Maybe both are together. But nevertheless, it's a physical body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. He does say, however, that there is no sacrifice critically different. This is what Luther over and over was just mercilessly criticizing the Catholic Church for. There is, he says, there is zero sacrifice in the Lord's Supper, even though the real presence of Jesus is somehow there. He says, we know that God has died for us once and that he distributes this death through preaching, baptizing, the spirit reading, believing, eating, and in whatever way he wishes, where he is, and whatever he does. So he does, he does have this, there is no sacrifice, but he has this view where uh, forgiveness of sins can be, and he just, the, 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 all the Luther scholars will say, uh, the best word is just to say it's communicated. And notice, it can be communicated however God wants. And Luther goes to his own pains to say this. God can communicate the forgiveness of sins through preaching, baptizing the Spirit, reading, believing, eating. And the person trying to study Luther is left going like, what exactly does that mean though? Right? What exactly does it mean that it communicates the forgiveness of sins uh, if it if you're not holding to the Catholic view, there was something there. But again, you see Luther trying to break away from this this Catholic view. But he, he has these uh, 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 the ties that stay with him. Uh, let me just say this. Yeah, let me. I'll say it now, and if I repeat it later, that'll be okay. Uh, Luther and Zwingli, which is the last view we're going to look at, the Zwinglian view, uh, they had a they had horrible, extremely vicious disputes about the Lord's Supper. And Zwingli's number one criticism of Luther's view was that Christ's body itself, his human body, uh, was not omnipresent. That God the Son is omnipresent, meaning. At, at all places, right? At all times. 
Um, but that his physical body wasn't. I mean, Jesus really came in. Jesus' body, well, actually, he, he rode, I guess, as the case may be, into Jerusalem. His physical body ascended to heaven. And, and he kept, and Zwingli kept over and over and over would say, his physical body can't be everywhere on Sunday morning. Over and over, it just, it's not possible. That's not possible. Luther really, really struggled with the idea that, and, and again, the scholars, if you want to go look at this, I don't, I don't have time for it right now, but the scholars seem to agree. Luther really, really struggled with the idea that God the Son took on a genuinely human body. So for him, he had a kind of human body that could be spread everywhere at once. Didn't seem quite human. wasn't wasn't totally immaterial, divine though. A lot of people think that in his sti- trying to stitch this together, he he uh, not that he explicitly held this. You know, maybe some people think he did, but a kind of Eutychianism, where where it, it, it was kind of like a hybrid. That's a hair. It's kind of a Jesus was this hybrid man. It, it was like a third thing. wasn't God. wasn't man. It was this blended thing that's actually neither one of them. And that's how he seemed to he seemed to flirt dangerously with this because he was trying to explain how the physical body of Jesus, not God the Son, the physical body of Christ could be everywhere. When that's that's not what we see in the in the Gospels. Okay, so now let's look at the reformed view. I say the reformed view because I think it's a misnomer, but it's what's called the reformed view, so whatever. We'll call it that and move on. Although I think it's really more specifically, Calvin's view, John Calvin's view. The Reformed view, notice I have that in quotes. The Reformed view, again, Calvin's view, certainly, is real spiritual presence. So we got presence here, but now we're moving totally away from Luther and saying there's the physical body or blood of, of Jesus. He's like, that's not it. We don't have physical presence. We have real spiritual presence. However, Calvin, to the great shock of most people who have not read the Institutes, has an odd view, I would say, of what real spiritual presence is. Don't take my word for it. Hope there's no typos. We say Christ, des- there is. We say Christ descends to us, both by the outward symbol and by His Spirit, that he may truly quicken our souls by the substance of his flesh and blood. For nothing is more beyond the natural than that souls should borrow spiritually and heavenly life from a flesh that had its origins from earth and underwent death. There is nothing more incredible than that things severed and removed from one another by the whole space between heaven and earth should not only be connected across such a great distance, but also be united so that souls may receive nourishment from Christ's flesh. From Christ's flesh. Another quote for you. If it is true that a visible sign is given us to seal the gift of a thing invisible... Then when we have received the symbol of the body, let us no less surely trust that the body itself is often, is also, excuse me, given to us. Walker sums it up commenting on Calvin for us right here. 
Although communion for Calvin is a spiritual act, it involves an actual sharing of Christ's flesh and blood. And although his body has now ascended physically into heaven, we are nonetheless able to make contact with it through the Spirit. So here's what the spiritual presence view is on Calvin's understanding. It's not just that, you know, God is spiritually present like he is right now because he's, he's omniscient. Calvin's view is there is a physical, there is a, there is a risen Savior with a physical body. And that somehow, that's what this, uh, can I go back? I can go back. I know how to go back. Oh, be there, Tyler. Hold on. That's what this is supposed to say. That there is nothing more beyond the natural than that soul should borrow spiritual and heavenly life from a flesh. So Jesus, he had a flesh. He underwent death. He ascended. Now he's in heaven. And then halfway through there again, there is nothing more incredible than that things severed and removed from one another by the whole of space. So we're down here. The physical body of Christ is in heaven. What's the incredible part? That they should be connected in some way across a great distance. We are, as it were, somehow uh, either transported. We, we are somehow in a dimension, something that he doesn't dare to exactly explain in the presence of or Christ is somehow brought near to us, the physical presence of Christ, but it's brought in a spiritual way, not in a way that we can touch. Okay? That's the spiritual presence view according to Calvin. Not to be confused with probably what most people would say if you said spiritual uh, presence. So why is it the Reformed view? The Westminster Confession of Faith says something that's a little bit vague, and I don't think the vast majority of Presbyterians you talk to would hold this view. But nevertheless... You got to do. You got to read from your own confession, right? So here's the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter twenty-nine. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporately, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine. They're trying to distinguish that from Luther's view, by the way. That's what Luther said. That's Luther language. They're trying to say, not he's not in, under, with the bread and wine. That's not it. But spiritually. Nevertheless, the body and the blood of Christ are spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Okay? Um, now, more of the Princeton School of Presbyterianism is not going to... They're, they're going to have their own exegesis of this little passage in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they're, they're going to hold a view that's far more similar to the final view that we're going to look, to look at. And that is the Zwinglian view, the Swiss Reformed. Again, he is Reformed. That's why I say the, the Reformed view... Zwingli was obviously a reformer, so. Oh, no. Okay. One minute. Okay. Zwingli in view. Very quickly. Zwingli took the standard that in the supper there was a standard metaphysical presence. Meaning that because God is om, om, uh, omnipresent, he can't ever be more in one place than he already is. Okay. God the Son can't be more in one place because He's not a spatial being, and yet He's causally active at every point in space. He is omnipresent. And the symbols of the supper are memorial. They do not communicate forgiveness of sins. 
He says this, We therefore now understand from the very name what the Eucharist, that is the Lord's Supper, is. Namely, the thanksgiving, and by the way, that's what Eucharist is. That's why he says that, right? The thanksgiving and common rejoicing of those who declare the death of Christ, that is, trumpet, praise, confess, and exalt his name above all others. And then finally, by this commemoration, all the benefits which God has displayed in his Son are called to mind. And by the signs themselves, the bread and the wine, Christ himself, as it were, set before our eyes, so that not merely with the ear, but with the eye and the palate, we see and taste that Christ, whom the soul bears within itself and whom it rejoices. And so he concludes, he does not believe that there is a sacrifice or forgiveness of sins affected or communicated, but that these elements, like Jesus, on his view, says, he says, as he broke bread, he said, this is my body. He was holding up bread. He wasn't pointing to himself. I mean, he says, no, Jesus was using these symbols to communicate something. And that's what the elements are supposed to do. They are supposed to stir us up. They are supposed to communicate. And when God's people are gathered corporately, um, certainly you have the presence of God to work in a particular way, but it doesn't somehow make him more there, right? God is not more descended as a being uh, it, during the Lord's Supper as any other time. Okay, I'm one minute over. Thank you for that. I got through that. Next time what we're going to do is we're going to come back. I'm going to give them a kind of evaluation, some commentary, and suggest kind of a fourfold perspective of how to think through the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to go through a list of what ifs. Who can partake in the Lord? Who can partake? Where can the Lord's Supper be taken? What about small groups? What about shut-ins? Who could administer the Lord's Supper? How often should the Lord's Supper be celebrated? Must we use one bread and one cup of blessing? Must we use real wine? Do we have to use bread and wine at all if we don't find we find ourselves without those things? And a couple more questions. Okay, just a practical theology of hey, well, what are we supposed to do with the, the actual practice of the Lord's Supper in the local church? All right, let's let's pray briefly as we conclude. God, we're thankful to be able to study. Uh, this supper. Thank you for giving us these reminders, these tokens. We pray that uh, perhaps even as a result of this Sunday school, that when we take the Lord's Supper later on, that we are stirred up in a fresh way to think about the sacrifice of Christ and what it accomplished on our behalf. We pray that you would be with us in our next hour of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.